we're going to look at some of the new unfolding data about how they're working. How are they doing in terms of preventing COVID or reducing death? I think we'll we'll find that we continue to be correct since we started warning about this early on. How efficient this whole thing is actually doing out there because we can see the newspapers being full of all the lives that have been saved in our individual countries. But this is all based on a mathematical model that uh, it's not based on fact. It's a mathematical model that hypothesizes that it actually works. Well, if you then take the studies that we'll be talking about and you model them into an efficiency model, you will come to completely different conclusions. We know that there is something fishy in talking about the efficiency of the vaccine on a daily basis when we have the uh, triple, quadruple, and five times uh, vaccinated people here that have one COVID infection after the next one because we actually have the wrong antibodies if they get primed through repeated injections. And then you have these unvaccinated family members that hardly get it at all and if they have it for maybe one or two days and the other ones are sick for two to three weeks uh, still very grateful for having received the shots because it could have been much worse but we know that case fatality rate was strictly uh, limited to people with uh, many predisposing conditions and underlying diseases and age group above 80. So you believe this is a premeditated thing that they were doing. So they realized that in order to get people enthusiastic about taking this vaccine, the best way to do that was to not have a protocol for treatment. It's not just my idea. Now it's completely laid out by the book by Dr. Pam Popper, the book recently published by Peter Bregan, uh, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. I wrote one of the uh, introductions, Dr. Leafly and Dr. Vladimir Lysenko wrote the other introductions. These books are basically nonfiction. They have a thousand citations in the Bregan book showing how it was coordinated and planned. Now Bobby Kennedy has his book out, The Real Anthony Fauci. I'm the most uh, uh, mentioned physician in that book. I can tell you that if you want to find the evidence that Moderna was working on the vaccine before the virus ever emanated out of the lab, if you wanted to find the, the collusions and the operations between the Gates Foundation and Gavi and CEPI and Pfizer and Moderna and the vaccine manufacturers and the Wuhan lab and the National Institutes of Health and Ralph Barrick and University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and how all this was organized. If you want to see the Johns Hopkins planning seminar called the SPARS pandemic in 2017, where they had a symposium, people showed up, they wrote up their symposium findings, they published this. It says it's going to be a coronavirus. It's going to be related to MERS and SARS. It's going to come over here to the United States. It's going to shut down cities and frighten people. There's going to be confusion regarding a drug, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And we're going to utilize all that in order to railroad the population into mass vaccination. It's laid out in the Johns Hopkins SPARS pandemic training seminar. The only thing that got wrong was the year. They said it was going to be 2025. Instead, it landed a few years early. And we've talked about cancer, we've talked about myocarditis, we've talked about all these things. Bunches of studies looking at many different mechanisms that either are shutting down the immune systems, that it's not going to recognize things like cancer cells and things like that. But you, uh, as an oncologist, and you're from Canada, have been very focused and, and are sort of bringing this new term, I think, to light, which is turbo cancer. What does that mean? Turbo cancer, it's a recent term. It, it arose in the public domain and it really describes aggressive cancers that are arising in COVID vaccinated individuals. It's showing up in young people, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 
Uh, the youngest case that I've reported was a 12-year-old boy who had one Moderna vaccine. Four months later, develops stage four brain cancer, and then six months later, he died. And so this is something I've never seen before in my career. I've diagnosed probably 20,000 cancer patients in my career. I've never seen cancers behaving like this. They grow very, very rapidly, and they present at a late stage. I think it's the rapid growth of the tumors, and they don't seem to be causing symptoms. So they only present when the tumors are quite large already. They're pretty much stage four. Stage three, stage four, that's when they're presenting. Understanding what was going on with respect to transplant patients, let's take before the COVID era. It was important to have a good understanding, uh, not only of immunology, in other words, how to prevent the body from rejecting an organ or tissue, but also recognizing that when you're giving people drugs to permit the organ to be accepted by the body, so you're reducing the efficacy of the immune system, you have to be very cognizant of infection as well. And it's always a balance of getting the right level of immunosuppression without giving too much that makes the person at risk for infection or the development of cancers. Well, good evening, everybody uh, out there in Alberta. And uh, I'm obviously in Calgary. It's Carrie Lambert from the Whistle Stop Cafe. And I am, yes, I'm in my basement. We're actually just waiting for Chris Scott to join us, my co-host, if you want to call it. I'm just the Carrie in the Chris Carrie Show. And, of course, he's the Chris in Chris Carrie Show. Um, what a day it has been. We've been kind of driving all over the place. Uh, Chris came down for a meeting uh, in Calgary, and we ended up talking about a bunch of different things, talking about the NCI, of course, that uh, we're going to be talking about that with the doctors today. That release came out today, the final report. And uh, was it was it shocking to us? No, not, not at all. I think uh, we all knew kind of what the report was going to be. But the big question is, so now we've got this report, what do we do with it? What do we do with this information? And um, I downloaded the report. Actually, I'm just going to copy and paste the link for everyone out there. It is, I'm going to scroll right down the bottom. This is on a different page because for whatever reason, I can view it on uh, a PDF uh, separate than what's on my computer screen. I'll, I'll just show this right here. So this is the final report, and if I scroll down on here, it begins to lose all these pages, but I'll let you know, there's 5,324 pages, 5,324 pages of in the report. Now, it's broken up into three different pieces. It's broken up into uh, the actual report, uh, findings, as well as the testimony. 
So it's actually got the test. Oh, look at that. It actually worked this time. It's actually got the actual testimonials uh, written in there. And I'm going to click on that. And look who's on the very last page. Look who's on the very last page. Maybe I can zoom in on that. Dr. William Mackis is on the very last page. So there you go. And guess who we happen to have on the show tonight? We have Dr. William Mackis and we have uh, Dr. Dennis Modry. Of course, we're going to have a continuation of the show that we did yesterday with the doctors. We had Peter McCullough on yesterday. We had uh, uh, Mark Trozzi, doctor, and, uh, of course, Christoph Ploth. If you haven't watched that show, don't stop this. You can watch it tomorrow. But go on the com and find it there. It was riveting. It was about an hour and 50 minutes long and uh, lots of really good information. And we talked, we talked a lot about uh, different things. We talked about uh, the proof, what, how the government was, was getting involved, what they were doing. We talked about uh, the wellness company and, and how you can actually uh, get rid of the, the, the spike protein in your body, yada, yada, yada. We, we did all that. And, and, and it's, you know, I, I was in shock with a lot of the information that was, that was talked about. Today is even going to be more shocking because I've already told Dr. Mackis there's no censorship. Just talk, talk freely, and let's get going. So let's uh, let's bring Dr. Mackis and Dr. Modry in. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Good evening. Nice to meet you, Dr. Mackis. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you, Dr. Modry. Have, you, have you guys never met before? Not yet. No, no we well, haven't. But, virtually. Uh, but you are one of the more prolific uh, writers, for sure. I, yes. All the uh, all the information that you're getting out is truly remarkable. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank you very and, much. I appreciate that. And and I, I mentioned yesterday that uh, how we first found out about Dr. Mackis was, of course, the report on the uh, the eighty doctors uh, that uh, that died suddenly or vaccine injury, and then after that, we we talked about the kids. Right, because that seemed to be the next big thing that you were talking about, and now it's it's everywhere. You're 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 going anywhere from uh, from kids all the way up to uh, to adults, and on your website, I just want to uh, I didn't call it the Substack page, but on your um, uh, on on your X or your Twitter, you usually show. I'm going to say probably three to a dozen a day on these. Um, uh, what what's actually been happening in terms of deaths, in terms of uh, of, of injuries? Can I ask you uh, just a, a quick question in regards to do you put all this information together, or is it sent to you? Because I I have a hard time putting together just a a quick website or a video, and I the amount of content that you churn out per day is absolutely amazing. You know, Carrie, I uh, my wife told me that that I'm very organized, and I think yeah. you know with this I have to be because uh, I do get sent uh, you know hundreds of private messages, DMs, emails uh, a day. Um, I have to sift through them. I, I get sent a lot of obituaries. I get sent a lot of information about people who've been vaccine injured, who've died. Um, you know, things that are not in the obituaries or things that people don't know. Uh, yeah. Then I have to collate all that information together. I write articles, so I try to put out one article every day. I try to put out one interview every single day on, on yeah. my Substack as well. And then I've taken to reporting died suddenly cases on Twitter. 
um, anywhere from you know 10 to 20 a day. Uh, I've stopped for the last couple of days because I'm traveling at the moment, but I've been reporting on a regular basis since about April of this year, about 10 to 20 cases, died suddenly cases a day, and simply factual information, who, who these people are, what their age is, their name, where are they located, what their job is, and yeah. what, was, what were the circumstances of their death. Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't know, sometimes it's incomplete information. Sometimes yeah. I know when they took their vaccine because they have the badge from Facebook. That's sometimes right. they have their vaccine card and sometimes I don't have the vaccine, but I know that they were mandated vaccines to stay in school and university or they were mandated the vaccine to keep their job as a physician or keep their job as a teacher or nurse. So sometimes yeah. you have to infer the vaccine status, for example. It's incomplete information, but I think it's information that needs to be out there. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's... I, I look at your page and it's, you know, it's shocking. It's sad. Um, like I, I, I tear up when I read some of these things because my big concern is people really didn't know what was going on and they were just following the, the government uh, mandate. Right. And as I said, especially talking about the NCI today, that's really what it came down to is that there was a level of trust lost between doctors between the the government and, and you know i'm not even sure exactly where we should be going with this but like how do we how do we get that uh, that trust back because uh, it, it is so so shocking when you when you see hundreds if not well actually thousands of these reports i can i can tell you carrie i have a back i have a backlog of about a thousand two hundred died suddenly cases that i haven't even able, been able to put up on any of my social media. And then there's new ones coming in every single day. So this is going to be a, a constant flow. By the yeah. end of the year, I would have reported about four or 5,000 died suddenly cases through my Substack or Twitter or Instagram. Uh, this is just a tsunami of deaths and injuries. It's absolutely tragic. And you know what? We've all been lied to. I, I think it's an important distinction, You know, whether you're vaccinated, unvaccinated, We've all been lied to and we were lied to by the politicians. We were lied to by the public health officials, by doctors, by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, we were lied to by almost every person in a position of power from the very beginning. And when you look at 2020, we were lied to about masking. We were lied to about the lockdowns. Um, you know, we of course then we get to the vaccines and we were lied to about the vaccines, which is probably the biggest lie of all, because that is the thing that has affected most people's health and lives and families. Uh, that was the biggest lie was the vaccine. And, you know, we are still, you know, reeling from, from those lies. Um, you know, I don't even know how you even begin to rebuild trust when we've had, we've had no justice. Uh, no one has been held responsible for any of the harm that has been inflicted on people throughout the last three years. No one has been held responsible to this day. Not yet. Right. So there, part, pardon me for being Hi, uh, late. Chris. Yeah, sorry. Hi, hi uh, Dr. Modri and Dr. Makis. Thanks for joining us. Um, there's another thing, like we're talking about how, how do we get back this trust and where do we go from here? But one of the reasons why I was so, uh, I was so, excited to have Dr. Modri and Dr. Mackis on is there's another issue that we should talk about that's being used to discredit uh, this conversation. Like there's, there's, 
uh, dozens of doctors that we've talked to um, that are speaking out on these things, sounding the alarm, saying, hey, there's something going on. This is wrong. We need to look into this. We need to fix things and, and, uh, and, and not make these mistakes again. And they're being attacked. Like both you, Dr. Modri and Dr. Macus, uh, in some of the social media posts that Carrie and I put up, um, they're referencing some of the battles that you guys have had with AHS. Yeah. Now, yeah. I'm privy to information about why you guys ended up um, on the wrong side of the kangaroo court with AHS. But this is a big deal. This bureaucracy is discrediting good doctors, excellent doctors who want to save lives like you two, you two men. And these, uh, these uh, uh, authoritarian college of physicians and surgeons across this country are, are weaponizing these tribunals and, and then using words like incompetent or, or, or unethical and, and these types of things. So um, I'm, I'm hoping, and I, I kind of springing this on you, but would either of you care to maybe just explain how that process works? Like Dr. Modri, you and I had this conversation about how you ended up on the wrong side of the bureaucracy. And to me, when you explained it, I was like, well, you know, this is what happens when a good man tries to do things to help people and the bureaucracy doesn't like it. So can, do either of you want to comment on that? Well, maybe I'll just, uh, I'll just start off. Yeah, so I mean, I had a dispute with uh, Alberta Health Services. It wasn't with the college, it was with Alberta Health Services. And it had to do with, um, uh, with dealing with um, high-risk cases, uh, which was um, my major referral base, uh, particularly having you know, started and directed the transplant program. And um, I won't get into all of the experience that led that to be the case that I was the preferred surgeon. But as Dr. Macus would know, you know, if you operate on somebody um, and they have a risk of less than 1%, um, and if you don't operate, they're going to die, seems eminently sensible to go ahead. What about if the risk is 50-50 or the risk is 70-30 or the risk is 90-10? Um, and where I got into difficulty with AHS was when a patient is on their knees or their family is on their knees begging for something to be done, and you know that you have the skill set to get that patient looked after, and you have a track record in which if you're operating on people that have a, a risk profile that's 70%, but only 5% of them die, then um, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good outcome. But the problem that AHS had with dealing with high-risk high risk cases was very simple. It was that they'd take up more resources in the ICU, more resources on the ward, they'd spend longer in the hospital, and in a way that did prevent other patients from getting more timely care. So this became an ideological battle in AHS uh, and I, at the end of the day, we settled because when AHS knew that we had leave to go to the Supreme Court, they settled with me. So that was, that was my situation. But that's parenthetic to what's relevant here. What's relevant here is that, and Dr. Macus will know this, from the onset of COVID-19 up until um, later in the fall of that first year, particularly uh, I think October the 4th when the Great Barrington Declaration came out, much of the uh, data that was being used to justify masks, and as everybody will remember, 
uh, it went back and forth, back and forth. Yes, they're good. No, they're not. Yes, they're good. No, they're not. Um, it, it became evident when you started looking at the evidence that the evidence wasn't there. Uh, there was no justification for the mandates, the lockdowns, um, or the social distancing. And so as you folks will probably know, Dr. Marcus, I don't know if you know, but by the time uh, the end of November came around and there was compelling evidence, absolute good studies against these things, um, and there was a threat for another lockdown, I wrote an open letter to the Premier because I couldn't get in touch with him directly, even though I had his, his contact information. Um, and then from there, it took three months before I got a response back. But the response couldn't refute any of the evidence that I provided because every statement had the attached URL to it. So the, the, the problem that we have now is one of, and this was touched on, one of accountability. There is no accountability. And who is an organization that should be um, able to hold people to account? Well, number one, it's the media for one thing, but the media are bought and sold um, now. And so there was never anything that came in the mainstream media that was a counter narrative to the issues of these masks, social distancing, et cetera. Um, and then the other um, corrupted organization is the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So if we're looking at a process to help turn uh, this around, the college has to be changed. The college has to be reconstituted or the whole system has to be reconstituted in a way in which um, informed consent and first do no harm actually is relevant uh, for physicians. But the college ignored that completely. And the college got in the way of uh, physician-patient interaction by telling physicians exactly how they had to treat people. And this is still going on in some in some certain uh, respects as well. So accountability, I think, is going to come with a, a change in the college. I know that the um, the UCP government is anxious to make a change, but the but they have to overcome some legislative issues, which I think um, uh, very likely is in the works. But I don't have any firsthand information on that. The other thing I wanted to mention is the the NCI, the National citizens inquiry, um, virtually as soon as it came out, you saw the mainstream media attacking it as, well, this is just confirming what Preston Manning's previous uh, perspective was on um, the management of COVID-19. And so, so this, is, this is the kind of thing that is extremely difficult to overcome, and it can only be overcome um, by having a government in place that is willing to hold people accountable, College of Physicians and Surgeons that are willing to hold people accountable. And right now in Canada, it seems like um, the only government that is willing to hold some people accountable is our own government here in the province of Alberta. And it started, as you know, with firing of the AHS board. But more needs to be done and, and you know, how that all unfolds, I don't really know. But what Dr. Mackis is doing and, you know, what uh, Paul Alexander and 
uh, Robert Malone, Roger Hodkinson, many of these very fine uh, physicians um, and um, uh, are doing is trying to shine a light on all of these problems. One of the things I'd be interested um, in uh, asking Dr. Mackis is <clears throat> um, you're well aware that the um, the um, actuarial survival rates that insurance companies look at, there's been a big jump up to 40% between the ages of 20 and 50 or 20 and 60. I just forget that exact range. Um, and there was nothing to account for it other than uh, the vaccines. And so um, the my understanding is that there is pending litigation between the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies, because the insurance companies are denying claims um, of people who died from the vaccine. And the, and the um, uh, of course, this is an issue with respect to whether or not Pfizer and Moderna and, and AstraZeneca, and et cetera, were telling the truth about the safety of the vaccines. So, so I'm wondering whether or not there will be an accountability uh, component to all of this um, shedding a light, uh, you know, through that kind of litigation. The only problem is, is it takes so darn long to go through this litigation process. Um, so th those those would be my comments, but I'm I'm sure that there are many other prudent comments on how to hold people accountable and institutions accountable and corporations accountable um, and not just through the voting system but uh, but other ways as well so let, let me just interject something here real quick because you mentioned litigation against Pfizer uh, from the insurance companies one of the major hurdles we're running into is we're in this weird twilight zone loop where uh, doctors and scientists professionals like you two men speak out and you say in my expert opinion and you were experts before this i don't know why they would say that you're not an expert now but in my expert opinion this is wrong this is wrong we need to do this and this is how i want to uh deal with my patient um the college of physicians and surgeons in some cases and actually a lot of cases is turning around and saying well because this doctor isn't following the status quo because they're doing their own job and fulfilling their own oath between them and their patient we are going to persecute them. I read Mark Trozzi's uh, report from the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario, and it is disgusting. The words they use to describe him for the crime of, a, uh, of giving his patients vaccine exemptions because they did not have informed consent. Now that's a major tenant of, of medicine is informed consent. And he respected that. And I, I commend him for that. And you, Dr. Macus, you, Dr. Motor, you've said the same things. But now, because that's on the record in this kangaroo court that the College of Physicians and Surgeons Tribunal uh, becomes, the media picks that up. And all of a sudden, uh, you guys become quacks in the media because the College of Physicians and Surgeons said these things about you. So, Dr. Motor, you nailed it. They're, uh, the only way to combat that is to legislate, um, and maybe the more appropriate word is castrate, the College of Physicians and Surgeons so they no longer have that power over our physicians. Why the hell should the College of Physicians and Surgeons have that kind of power over our medical practitioners 
when we're the ones that suffer the consequences. So that's, uh, you know, when we talk about problems and solutions, that's a big problem that's going to need a really big solution. I can tell you, Chris, um, I ran, when I came to Alberta, I, I, you know, I was very naive and I was very optimistic and enthusiastic and I, and I dove into my cancer work and I was, you know, I was reporting PET scans and bone scans and I was seeing patients at my office. My office was a revolving door. I was so busy, but I was happy. I was happy to be busy, happy to be seeing patients. And I realized that, you know, no matter how hard I worked, it didn't matter to the AHS managers, AHS executives. They had their own agendas. They had their own ideology. They had their own ideas. Uh, initially, they were not that happy that, you know, my cancer program wasn't making them money, that they were actually, they claimed that my program was losing money because they had to lend me nurses. They had to lend me uh, staff. And it took away from my diagnostic imaging time. Basically, you know, no one was was making money apparently and i didn't know that that was a thing that you know i thought we're you know we're in healthcare to to help people and not not to make money but then i realized there's some very strong ideological and political um games that ahs bureaucrats play and so when they sabotaged my cancer program at cross cancer institute they couldn't do it legally and officially because it was a highly successful cancer program with a health canada a sponsored clinical trial that Health Canada paid for the cancer treatments. Alberta didn't even didn't even pay for them. It was it was Health Canada um, compensated, uh, you know, covered the cancer treatments. So they sabotaged me by by basically um, they created a fake complaint. They bribed. Uh, they tried to bribe my nurses and technologists to file a fake complaint against me that they could then use as an excuse to get me out of the workplace and then put me through their own process, um, which is called the triggered initial assessment, where AHS, it's an internal AHS process where they put you through their own courts, court, right? And it's, a, it's fully run by AHS. And they put me into this meat grinder and then it was just, you know, they wanted to run out my contract and then basically get me out of Alberta uh, and then I filed a lawsuit and I actually hired Dr. Modri's uh, lawyers that he had, you know, used against Alberta Health Services to go after AHS because they had experience dealing with AHS because most big law firms were not willing to take on the case because AHS was their client. So it would be seen as a conflict of interest. And so Alberta Health Services is very deeply connected to the legal system in Alberta, to the major law firms in Calgary and Edmonton. Um, they all uh, are have AHS as a client so that if you try to sue AHS, you can't because they invoke this conflict of interest. And I found out very quickly that AHS has unlimited resources at their disposal to destroy anyone they want to destroy. They put you through legal proceedings. They're happy to go to court. They will spend millions of dollars in court. You know why? Because it's Alberta taxpayer money. It's not their money. And so they will waste you know, millions and millions of dollars persecuting people like like Dr. Modri, like myself. There's hundreds of lawsuits that AHS is involved in. I always said, get control of AHS legal because that is how the mafia, the AHS mafia is operating. They're operating through AHS legal, which runs all these huge lawsuits. Um, get control of that. And I think Danielle Smith, she actually fired the head of AHS legal 12 days ago when she fired uh, Tina Giesbrecht, 
um, the senior vice president of HS Legal. And she also fired Francois Belanger, who's the chief medical officer since 2015, installed by Rachel Notley, when Rachel Notley and Sarah Hoffman installed Verna Yu and Francois Belanger as HS CEO and chief medical officer. And they've been there throughout the entire pandemic. So when AHS was, you know, doing the um, uh, basically putting out recommendations so that doctors could not treat patients with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And they even said that vitamin D doesn't work. When we know that high dose vitamin D is, is very good at prophylactic, prophylactic measures for COVID-19, but also treating very severe COVID patients as well. Uh, there are places in Europe and South America who are treating patients with 100, 200,000, 400,000 units of vitamin D, and they're seeing amazing results we were not allowed to even talk about vitamin D. And, and all of these measures um, that were in lockstep with the globalist institutions like the WHO or the World Economic Forum were being carried out by bureaucrats, unelected bureaucrats that were there since Rachel Notley installed them back in 2015 when she purged other conservative AHS executives who were not aligned with the Trudeau-Notley alliance. So she kicked out Vicky Kaminsky, AHS CEO. She kicked out Dr. Paul Grundy, who was the head of AHS Cancer Care. She ended up kicking out uh, Dr. David Mador, who was uh, vice president of the Northern Zone. And, and Dr. Modri has some experience with uh, Dr. David Mador, I remember. Um, well, it was a corrupt guy, but again, he was not on board with the Trudeau-Notley Alliance. So she did her purge. And all those people stayed installed throughout Jason Kenney's government. And I couldn't for the life of me understand how did Jason Kenney not purge AHS of these corrupt bureaucrats that ran AHS under Rachel Notley? How did he leave them in control? And they made a fool out of him. I don't know if you remember, but Verna Yu was doing press conferences where she was making a complete fool out of Jason Kenney. Uh, he begged her to open up more ICU beds and, and you know, he threw money at AHS and, and, and AHS did their own thing and made a fool out of him because AHS was run by unelected left wing extremist bureaucrats, you know, that Notley had installed back in 2015. Now, going to the college where I ran into the college again, I had no issues with the college. I've never had a patient complaint in my entire career. But when I rejected AHS's $400,000 settlement offer that they put on the table in 2017, they said, listen, Macus, we got to shut you up. Here's $400,000 from AHS. We'll make it tax-free. You have to sign a non-disclosure agreement with AHS legal counsels. I rejected that bribe. And within six hours, the college itself opened a complaint against me that they then used to confiscate my medical license, eventually have me declared... Uh, uh, unprofessional conduct uh, for some made-up complaint that they made up, and then eventually uh, took my license and have been holding. They've been holding my license license hostage since 2017. Back in 2018, they said we'll give you your license back if you give up your lawsuit against AHS and put in writing declaring yourself mentally incompetent or that you are suffering what? from a, that that you are suffering <laughs> from a mental impairment. And they gave me the choice. They said, you could choose depression, you could choose anxiety, or you could just tell us you were stressed. Just put it in writing that you had a mental impairment and that is why you sued AHS. And not because they destroyed my cancer program and they left 
hundreds of Alberta cancer patients to die without any cancer treatment options. Holy so that's, that is my experience with college, with the college. And this is before the pandemic. Yeah. So it didn't surprise me to see that the college, because the college is now the strong arm of AHS. The college is like the muscle. It's like when the mafia sends a hitman or a strong man to strong arm the person into, you know, paying up the money that they owe to the mafia. That is the college. That is their function. That is who they've become. They are strong arming Alberta's doctors into staying in line with all the COVID propaganda, with the, the state approved COVID narrative. And they held the license. And it, the, the, the license is the key. The license is what they hold over the doctor's heads. Yeah. And if you write vaccine exemption letters, mask exemption letters, you treat your patients with ivermectin like Dr. Daniel Nagasi did, they will strip you of your license and they will make an example out of you. This is what they're doing to Dr. Mark Trozzi. The reason why they're doing it so publicly and why they're willing to have people sit in on, on, on the tribunals, even though the tribunals are a complete kangaroo court and a complete joke in the legal sense, is because they want the public spectacle. They want to make an example out of Dr. Trozzi so that other doctors don't dare to yeah. even think of stepping out of line and away from the COVID narrative and the vaccine narrative. But that's okay because it's all for our health, right? <laughs> well, and you know, here's the thing. How is it possible that the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta is a private corporation? How is it possible that you cannot file a freedom of information request yes. because I filed a dozen freedom of information requests to get documents of my own proceedings and they said, oh, you cannot go through the, the FOIP Act, you have to go through the PIPA Act because they're a private corporation. How is it possible that a private corporation in Alberta controls the medical licenses of 11,000 doctors? That to me is absolutely unacceptable. And as Dr. Modri said, there's a, there's a legislative solution to this. You amend the Health Professions Act, yeah. Yeah. you dissolve the college, and yeah. you create a new medical board from scratch. Do a clean new medical board from scratch, make it public. It has to be a public entity. It has to be fully transparent to Alberta taxpayers, and it has to be accountable to the public through the provincial government, so through the Ministry of Health. And it's, it's probably a problem with all the colleges. So you would have to do all the colleges. I, that's where it gets complicated because I think a lot of the colleges are, are done the same way. Uh, but how do you deal with this old established mafia, this private corporation at the college where Danielle Smith can't even go into the college and find out what's going on? She can't get documents. She can't even step foot inside because it's a, it's a private entity, an old boys club run by corrupt lawyers. So we need like a reboot. We need a reboot of the colleges, a, a complete refresh, and it has to be accountable to Albertans because ultimately they are there to serve Albertans. And it's not that Albertans are there to serve the college. You know, they're there to serve us. And so we should have a college fully accountable to Albertans um, as a public entity. Yeah. I have two questions. First one's for Dr. Modry. If you advocated for Sheila Annette Lewis, right? Yep. If the College of Physicians and Surgeons wasn't in the way and Alberta Health Services Legal wasn't in the way, what, what, uh, what's your opinion on the chances of her having a successful transplant and leading uh, a longer life than she did? Well, um, 
Sure, yeah. Well, I know a lot about this because I was involved trying to uh, help her. Um, so the problem, of course, was that the, um, the lung transplant program, of which at one point I was the director, um, made a decision that they wouldn't accept anybody on their um, or activate them on the transplant list if they wouldn't um, accept a, the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm -hmm. And she did not want to accept the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. And, um, and there was no justification for her uh, to have to take that vaccine, but it became a mantra um, that it just had, it just had to be that way. So um, there was no, there was never a randomized uh, prospective trial to compare um, recipient lung transplant candidates um, who were vaccinated versus recipient lung transplant candidates who were not vaccinated. There was no alternative evidence to support that um, outcome. Um, that uh, I mean, any outcome because we just didn't we didn't have the data. But they made a unilateral decision, and they made that decision based on what they would view as a best guess. But they also made that decision based on consensus. Okay, there was a consensus throughout the transplant community that uh, we should not transplant uh, people who were not vaccinated. But there was never any evidence for it. And nobody had the courage to actually um, transplant people who were um, unvaccinated. So towards the end, while she's still alive, we become aware that the Cleveland Clinic and a, a clinic in, um, uh, in Florida, I just can't remember which one it is right now, um, and also at the Montreal Jewish General Hospital, that they had transplanted people, um, had done lung, tra lung transplants on people who were not vaccinated. And the outcomes were, ver were very good. In Montreal, there were three people and I spoke to the, to the person in charge of the lung transplant program there. Um, so in the case of Sheila Annette Lewis, because she had been on the transplant waiting list for a couple of years, she missed a tremendous opportunity. A donor didn't come up and, you know, um, uh, before COVID hit, and then after COVID hit, um, she was she was considered status zero, meaning that that she wouldn't be activated if a suitable donor, her size and blood type, became available. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> um, eventually, because of pressure that was put on AHS, and I had spoken directly to the head of the, the transplant program is considered a friend, a nice guy. Um, it, 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 she was getting much sicker and she got to the point where the only potential solution was to put her on um, a form of life support called extracorporeal membrane oxygenator support. It's basically just a tube that goes in through a vein in your heart and sucks out blood, oxygenates it and gives it back. So just to make it simple. Now, people have been supported for as long as 605 days, a couple of hundred days, 300 days, and then a donor has become, has, has come right. available. In her case, <clears throat> they wouldn't put her on ECMO. 
um, even though they um, activated her status uh, so that if a, do a suitable donor came up, she'd be transplanted. But that was just virtue signaling to the family and to the public um, because they knew she was getting sick enough that she wasn't going to survive much longer and there was no way they were going to continue supporting her. Um, and so that's why they never put her on ECMO. So the decisions that are made these days, and Dr. Mack has touched on it in terms of economics <clears throat> affecting how things operate, um, it is the case these days that decisions are made for economic purposes and not necessarily in the best interest of patients. And yet at the same time, there's a tremendous waste in the system as well. There's an inefficiency in the system that is so dramatic that, that the estimates are that probably 20 to 30% of the healthcare budget could be cut and improve, uh, improve access to care and the quality of care that people get. Now, whether that's completely accurate or not, but there's data out there that would suggest that. So, so the, system, the system has to change dramatically. So we're seeing things happen now with uh, a new format for healthcare in the province of Alberta. I don't know the details of that. I've tried to find out from some key people, um, but it's, it's gonna be an evolution to see how things unfold. Unfortunately for people like Dr. Marcus and others, um, who have had their licenses uh, suspended, they're going to have to wait until the college has changed mm -hmm. in this province, in my opinion. And there's another group, um, and I don't know, Dr. Marcus, if you're aware of the Canada Health Alliance, um, and that's an organization that wants to implement a new uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons in the province of Alberta. And they've produced a document uh, which would be fundamentally the bylaws to replace the bylaws of what the current College of Physicians uh, is using. And um, that's a very good document. I haven't read it completely yet, um, but it for sure would solve the kind of problems that you and many others um, have faced. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just touch on one thing that you said earlier as well, um, because it was my own experience as well. Um, the cost, the cost is exorbitant. I spent millions of dollars fighting AHS, literally. Yeah. But I had, but I had uh, something in my back pocket that AHS didn't know. And that was that I had friends in medical records. Medical records provided me the data that I could use for Euroscore to, to confirm, I already had done the Euroscore and the Society for Thoracic Surgeons scoring system, which is used to determine what a risk profile, what the risk profile is of a patient. Mm -hmm. So I had that data, which we didn't use in the, in, the, in the second round in court, but we had it and that's what we were going to the Supreme Court with. AHS knew that and they, they, that's what forced them to settle with me. So, so we had the data, in other words, um, and uh, but I had I had seventeen lawyers working for me, Dr. Marcus. Seven. Wow. So it's amazing how the money always flows to the lawyers. So, uh, Dennis, could Sheila have been saved? Of course, she could have been. 
Of course she could have been. Um, there's, there's, there's no question about it. But listen, there's lots of people who become candidates for transplantation, whether it's heart, liver, lung, pancreas, yeah. whatever, bowel, um, and they don't survive. And they don't survive because a donor doesn't become available. A suitable donor doesn't become available in time. So, but she would have had three years, literally, of candidacy if she hadn't been taken off the active transplant list. So, so that you, Dr. Dr. Mackis, um, I just have one more question for you. How many patients would you do you estimate that you would have treated per month at the Cross Cancer Institute when you were practicing? So I, I had a record of um, of my patients in terms of patients that I followed with imaging and patients that I actually treated. Um, I treated several hundred patients. We were uh, we had a limit of 400 on our clinical trial, and I had about 200 in the trial, and I had about another hundred that I followed closely. They had, you know, they had recently had surgery, so they wouldn't be eligible for the treatment. But you know, we had to watch them closely because they they had metastatic disease, for example, uh, so they would become eligible for my trial. So several hundred patients in terms of treatment. In terms of what AHS did was they undermined the continuity of care for my diagnostic imaging patients. I was the lead PET CT reader in the province of Alberta. I followed patients with many PET CT scans. Um, and what you do is you want the same radiologist to read subsequent scans because, you know, you've, let's say you've reviewed the pathology, you've reviewed the correlating, correlative imaging. Uh, and so you're, you've got some familiarity with that patients. Well, I had about 2000 of those cancer patients that I followed the imaging on a regular basis. Uh, AHS severed that. Um, then they had shortages in diagnostic imaging for many years after that. They brought in fellows. They brought in all kinds of people to try to, at one point, they brought in three people to try to replace me. And they still couldn't replace all the services that I was providing. It was waste. They wasted, I can tell you, AHS wasted, when Dr. Modry talks about millions of dollars, AHS wasted millions of dollars persecuting me and continuing to try to destroy me, destroy my career. I think, I estimate they, they must have spent at least $5 million in legal fees just trying to stop me from practicing medicine in Alberta. That is money that was taken from, from clinical care. Albertans yeah, don't Sheila and Lewis. Albertans, exactly. Albertans don't pay AHS to wage legal wars against doctors that they don't like or who don't get along with their AHS managers. Albertans pay money. They pay that $23 billion for AHS to provide the yep. care that they need and to have access to that care when they need it and yep. not, you know, not be able to provide ICU beds when there's a small pandemic like AHS was unable to. One thing I wanted to add to, to what Dr. Modri said about Sheila Annette Lewis is that let's not forget that AHS dragged Sheila Annette Lewis through the course, through both of yeah. Alberta's courts. They dragged her through the Court of King's Bench, where she was put um, in front of uh, Judge uh, Belzel, who actually used to be my my lawyer for my corporation. He actually set up my he helped set up my corporation in Alberta when I first came to Alberta. Uh, he sided with AHS. Then she appealed to the Court of Appeal, went before three justices, and AHS continued persecuting her, continued trying to make sure that she couldn't um, you know, get access to a transplant. 
and then she lost um, the appeal at the court of appeal level as well. And then it's my understanding that the Supreme Court uh, refused to hear her case completely. That's so, correct. Yeah. So, so I want I want to just I want people to understand that H has fought a war against yeah. Sheila Annette Lewis, a legal war that was funded by Alberta taxpayers to make sure that she wouldn't get her transplant. That is how sick uh, AHS is in terms of the, the, the battles that they wage against Albertans. Sheila you know, Lewis spent the last okay. month of her life fighting yeah. a legal battle with AHS, yep. not even spending all of that time with her family. That's how disgusting that was. And Dennis, I have one more question for Dr. Mackis before you continue. So subsequent to your battle with AHS, how many cancer patients have you treated successfully and uh, given the hope of a better life? AHS has blocked me from diagnosing or treating cancer patients since December of 2015. So previous to this, you were treating thousands of patients successfully. I was treating, I was, I was diagnosing thousands. I was treating hundreds just, just to be. Yes. Okay. So from hundreds to zero. Yeah. And they've held my license hostage since 2000, since June 2017, when I refused their $400,000 settlement offer, which they yeah. placed, uh, they gave to my to my lawyers. They said, you've got one week to sign this and to sign all the non-disclosure agreements that came with it. And they said, you know, we'll make it tax-free, $400,000. And I refused, I refused that settlement offer. Ever since then, they've held my license hostage. I've, I've effectively been a hostage in Alberta for the last six years. Now, the pandemic has made things very pleasant for me in the sense that the, what was done to me and my family, no one really cared about because it just affected me and my family and my cancer patients, which apparently politicians in Alberta don't give a damn about what happens to cancer patients in Alberta. Certainly the Notley government didn't give a damn. And it turns out the Jason Kenney government didn't give a damn either. But when the pandemic happened, millions of Albertans got to see the corruption yes. in our healthcare system, wow. corrupt AHSs. Look at what they did to Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky. Look at what they did to you, Chris. Look yep. at what they, what they did to people during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, how they persecuted people. This was AHS lawyers that were going to judges trying to get court orders so that they could arrest us, you know, like Pastor Art. You know, this yeah. was, it was AHS that was locking places down, going after people, going to courts, waging legal wars against people. Uh, and Albertans, thank God, Albertans got to finally see what AHS is, what the College of Physicians and Surgeons is all about, and how our, our healthcare system is, is corrupt. Yeah. They really put it all on the table, didn't they? they Eyes wide open. Yeah. So I, I want to make a something popped into my mind as I was listening um, with respect to the legal profession. Um, and Dr. Marcus is absolutely correct. It is difficult to find a law firm that um, doesn't have some sort of conflict because they've acted for AHS. Yeah. Um, so I think what the provincial government might consider doing is, um, is um, I don't know if it would require legislation or just simply be a policy uh, that the, uh, the government, uh, it'd probably be better if it was legislated, um, 
uh, is restricted to not more than two law firms in the province of Alberta. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's that's yeah. right. That would that would and, be amazing. Well, the, then then you've got then you've got uh, people like Dr. Mackis, myself, and others who want to take on AHS. You've got access to some of the best uh, lawyers and law firms um, because there's obviously excellent law firms in the province of Alberta. Um, and, um, and Dr. Mackis, uh, if you dealt with the same lawyers that I did or the same law firm, then uh, you know, even though they didn't do work with AHS previously, uh, there, there are some pretty darn good lawyers in that law firm. I'd like to see AHS's legal capped at maybe even like double what the defendant can reasonably afford. You know what I mean? We had, we had talked about that because really, no matter what, anytime you go against government, they, they it's have an supply. They go against the federal government. They'll just print more money. We but have, Jerry, but here's, here's, here's the interesting thing. People are not going against the government because AHS is, is, that's right. It's, no, they yeah. they build, build themselves as at arm's length of the government. They are actually their own entity. They don't see themselves as the government. And and I think that was part of the problem. One of the, the one of the things that amazed me um, when I in my legal struggles with AHS was the idea that every small manager or director at AHS had access to the finest lawyers, to the biggest legal teams. Uh, in the province of Alberta. And it didn't matter how small of a manager, HS manager or director, or how insignificant you were, you had access to unlimited taxpayer funded yeah. uh, lawfare. It was actually lawfare, you know, like warfare against uh, the people. Um, and, I, and I didn't understand how that's possible. How is it possible for my little diagnostic imaging manager to be able to access the finest lawyers in Alberta with unlimited Funding And when I had my um, CMPA lawyers, my um, Canadian Medical Protective um, Association lawyers, uh, they were actually telling me, they said, listen, Macis, you cannot wage a war with AHS because they will wage a war of attrition against your family and they will wage this war for years and years because they have unlimited funds. Yeah. And, and that is what I couldn't wrap my head, head around was how is it possible that every little AHS manager of every little hospital had access, unlimited access to corporate AHS lawyers. And I can tell you, Carrie, the last time I went to court, which was about half a year ago, when I tried to have AHS declared a vexatious litigant for abusing the court system. And of course, the judges turned it around on me and now are trying to extort me for court court costs. <laughs> um, the, the side, so when I go to court now, I'm self-represented. I've been self-represented since 2018 because I spent my life savings on lawyers and I had no more money to give to lawyers yeah. in Alberta. Uh, you know, I spent about $250,000 in legal fees and I had to call it quits and represent myself. So I've been representing myself for five years. I am in front of the judge alone on one side and on the opposite side, there are so many lawyers that show up in court that they can't yeah. even fill the seats. There's two rows of seats. They don't fit in all the seats. And there's also the college lawyers there too. And the college lawyers, I mean, they're con artists. They basically keep their mouth shut. They do copy and paste on everything AHS lawyers do. And they just sit there and they collect their fees. But they were spilling over to the back benches of the court because they there were so many of the lawyers that they didn't even fit in the courtroom. There were that many. So, I mean, this is what people are... That is why... 
when in terms of if you're a victim of medical malpractice, you cannot get justice in Alberta. Yeah. If you're a doctor who is a victim of of career sabotage, you can't get justice in Alberta. You know, if you're a healthcare worker and we had many healthcare workers who were sabotaged during the COVID pandemic, you cannot get any kind of justice in Alberta. Jeez. That that is uh, ridiculous. Yeah. And and I was going to say, so Chris, when when he had to go through his legal problems, I think there was seven lawyers and they I were four. lawyers. Though. Yeah. You had you had two lawyers and the other side had like seven lawyers. You know right? what I'd like to see, Kerry? I'd like to see the government do a, a report or an audit on how much money AHS spends in legal, either yeah. fixing or covering up or settling mistakes that they made in bungling our health care. Because as we know, it's in the it's in the top quartile of cost, yes, and the bottom quartile of quality of service. So, Chris, I, think, I can uh, tell you, if 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 Danielle Smith wants to bring down and really rain hellfire uh, on the media on on the NDP government, open up the books of AHS during the NDP government and see how much they spent on on lawsuits and and where all the money went. I can tell you. We're not talking a few million dollars. We're not talking, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. We're talking billions of dollars of, of waste, uh, mismanagement. Um, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here tonight. Uh, fraud, money laundering, embezzlement, what have you. But I think, honestly, AHS has been a black hole uh, in terms of taxpayer money. When AHS was initially formed, I think the budget was something like $10 billion. And that was considered outrageous at the time back in 2008, uh, when AHS had a budget of what was it nine or $10 billion. And we're looking at $23 billion yeah, for health exactly. now. A decade yeah. later, we haven't had any pr in improvement in any of the metrics uh, in terms of uh, provision of patient care, quality of care, you know, we should have we should have a CT and MRI in in every hospital, several of them. There should yeah. be no one waiting for imaging. These machines are not expensive. The reason why money doesn't get spent on top of the line equipment is because the money goes missing. I saw money go missing in my own department. We had hundreds of thousands of dollars go missing. We were short staffed. We were asking for locums. We were told, shut up. Don't ask where the money went. That's none of your concerns. They had their own internal accountants that were managing the money, probably cooking the books. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that, but I, yeah. I can tell you, wow. I would wow. love to know where all the money has gone over the last few years in terms of how AHS mm -hmm. has spent Alberta taxpayer money. And AHS legal is a big one because yeah. AHS has waged war against Albertans, Alberta citizens, many of whom, like myself, can't afford top-of-the-line lawyers. Meanwhile, they're paying you know, $500 an hour, $600 an hour to teams of lawyers, not like you know, one or two lawyers. They've yeah. got teams of lawyers spending outrageous amounts of money waging war against Albertans. And, and yeah. you know, that's something that, that has to stop. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully, that's something that's going to stop now. The money yeah. always goes to the lawyers, and it's lawyers that make up the College of Physicians and Surgeons Board and it's lawyers that write the framework for the well, legislation. Well, you know, so, so let me just let me just let me let me give you a little correction there, Chris. Um, so on paper, the college council is made up of doctors. Now, my experience with the college is that I've never seen any of the doctors that are supposed to run the college. I've never spoken. I've never seen the registrar. I've never mm -hmm. seen the complaints director. I've never seen the college council. 
and all I all I saw was lawyers. Yeah. And all they did, even when they did the, the tribunal against me to to try to have me declared an un, unprofessional conduct, whatever, so that they could then extort my family with the fees that they ran up on that tribunal, which was $75,000. Those are the fees that I didn't pay that they then, then canceled my medical license for. Everything was run by lawyers. Nothing was run by doctors. And all the uh, tribunal decisions, so like the decision of Dr. Trozzi that you read in Ontario by the college, the Ontario College, that's all written by lawyers. It's pre-written. The doctors have no input on it. It's put in front of them. They put their signature on it. That's as far as the doctor involvement goes. So when I say the colleges are run by lawyers, it's in the practical sense, the lawyers do everything because the doctors are too incompetent to know how to, how to um, exploit the loopholes of the Health Professions Act. It's the lawyers who manage everything uh, for them. So it would be a different story if it was a, you know, a, your peers making up the panel that was looking at the issues, right? But it's lawyers, so it's uh, that that's not right. So I, I have a quick story about AHS waste. So throughout all of this, I have this amazing uh, blessing to have people share their stories. One of the people that shared their stories with me was an AHS senior maintenance manager. Mm-hmm. Now this person came in and had coffee with me and was telling me um, about some of the things that they've seen and the waste they've seen. The one that stuck out was they built a new or, or retrofitted uh, a facility to bring it back to operational capacity. And they purchased two very large, very, very expensive to the tune of seventy-five dollars or $100,000 a piece. I can't remember what exactly the number was, but there were these two like air conditioning units uh, or air conditioning and heat units. Well, they didn't fit. So they put them in the AHS warehouse and this maintenance manager tripped over them for three years until one day his boss phoned him and said, uh, we need room in the warehouse, scrap those things. Brand new, never been installed, hundreds of thousands of dollars sat in a warehouse for years until they sent them to scrap. Now, these types of stories are like spiders. If you see one, there's a thousand you don't see. So imagine the the waste. And Dr. Mackis, I, I think you're correct. If the provincial government did their duty for the people of Alberta and looked into AHS's books, and saw what was going on and presented that to the public, I think the, the hellfire would be would be falling and change would be swift. I can tell you, I think I think the people of Alberta would support Danielle Smith. You know, uh, I, I think I think people want to know. People Albertans want to know what's being done with their money. Yeah. And 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 we don't know. Like I said, AHS is a black hole of just waste and mismanagement and fraud and God knows what else. All the legal stuff as well. Uh, I think it would be a very popular decision. I know it's a difficult decision politically because, and, I, and I've kind of been attacked by NDP in this, where people were telling me, UCP has been running healthcare for the past four years. Your, your, you know, yeah, yeah. your grievance, your grievance with yeah. UCP, even though the unelected bureaucrats like Verna Yu, Rachel Notley appointee, worked till April 2022. Francois Belanger, Chief Medical Officer of AHS, Rachel Notley appointee, worked until November 16, 2023 as the chief doctor and and vice president. He was actually, he ran AHS for all practical purposes for the last eight years. Uh, But we've had a UCP government for the four years. How do you explain to Albertans that, you know, um, effectively Jason Kenney, it was his responsibility and, and of course, his cabinet and, and, and you know, his team, 
how do you explain to Albertans that they effectively allowed this rot at AHS to fester for three years, and now Danielle Smith is actually making the moves, the correct moves that yeah. Jason Kenney should have done in 2019. Maybe we would have been able to avoid a lot of the pandemic abuses that Albertans were subjected to. Maybe Christian pastors would have never been persecuted um, if Jason Kenney had fired uh, all those AHS executives and taken control of AHS legal. Maybe we wouldn't have you know, persecution of small businesses uh, during the pandemic, yeah. we'll never know because he never made those moves. I was another say, interesting point. Yeah. It was a conservative government. I believe yeah. it was the Prentice government in 2009 when Danielle Smith was the leader of the official opposition when AHS was uh, born into its current form. That's right. Yeah. But AHS has mutated over over those years, oh, you know. Absolutely. And I, I recently saw a statement by um, by former Premier Ed Stelmack. And he said that AHS completely got away from what it was supposed to be uh, and that that really it was supposed to be accountable to the to, to Albertans through the provincial government. And they were so, um, you know, AHS had mutated into this kind of independent entity run by bureaucrats uh, with really no accountability at all. So I think it had <laughs> unions. Well, that, well I mean, that's, a, that's a whole separate uh, problem as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say maybe the damage, the four years of uh, Notley government uh, had so much damage that it takes eight years to fix it. Maybe. <laughs> well, there's another there's another thing. Um, Jason Kenney, um, as you know, you could take, for example, the issue of equalization. He didn't do anything with it because he knew he couldn't do anything with it. Right. And yeah. his focus was not Alberta. His focus was to become the prime minister of Canada. Um, and so he kept his caucus on a short leash and wouldn't allow a lot of things. And one of the things that he wouldn't allow, and Dr. Marcus, I don't remember if you were involved with this, but Peter McCullough, Paul Alexander, uh, Roger Hodkinson, myself, um, and several other um, physicians uh, mm -hmm. met with 14 cabinet ministers yes. uh, on a Zoom call. Were you on that call? Anyhow, that, 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 that particular call, the purpose of it was um, to get information to caucus uh, and to Kenny to counter uh, the mandates that had been implemented. Um, and it never went anywhere. Paul Alexander uh, provided a bunch of uh, evidence-based material, but it didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm go anywhere because Jason Kenney wouldn't let it go anywhere. And so the problem when when people say, well, the UCP government, you know, over the last four years hasn't done very much. Um, well, I'm not talking about since since uh, Danielle Smith became the premier, but during the Kenney reign didn't do very much. Well, they didn't they didn't do very much for a very good reason. And that is, like I said, Kenny wouldn't let very much happen. But now when people complain that it's the UCP government, it's not the same UCP. There's a new sheriff in town. Yeah, yeah. And that new sheriff is doing some things. Um, and, you know, in the conversations that I've had with the premier, uh, I've asked her, "You do you want to be the Iron Lady of Alberta? You know? Mm -hmm. And 
she wants to be the Iron Lady of Alberta, but she has to make value and principle-based decisions on doing the right thing and, and not base her decisions on polling. She needs to make decisions just to do it. And she did with AHS. She did with the Bill 1, the Alberta Sovereignty, Act, Alberta Sovereignty within the United Canada Act. She did uh, yesterday with um, some new legislation implemented to block the, yeah. the 2035 agenda. Um, I haven't read the legislation, uh, so I don't know exactly what it says or if it was just tabled and hasn't been discussed yet. I, I don't think it's been passed yet, Carrie. Has it been passed? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, no but, but, but in any case, she's, she's going to use the Sovereignty Act. So this is someone who has more cojones than the majority of the previous premiers in this province. Uh, except for maybe uh, Peter Lougheed and uh, and Ralph Klein, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but but uh, but other than that, um, you know, there aren't very many people that have stood up to the federal government. There aren't very many people that have stood up to AHS. In fact, there's nobody that stood up to AHS. So this 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 always seems politically uh, sensitive because our Medicare system is a sacred cow. But basically, it's a, it's a sacred cow <laughs> that's so bloated, it's about to explode. And I can't wait until that damn cow does explode. Agreed. This, this has been an interesting conversation because I had no idea that we was going to get so political. And, and, but, I mean, it just goes to show, like you were saying, Dr. Mack, is the, the cracks in the system that, that existed before. And then, of course, COVID happens. And now all this stuff is exposed. So not only is it, you know, we, the protocol of, of what should have been done and, you know, the, the college said, don't do that or we'll slap your hands or basically just take away your license. We can now see that, well, that existed from that long ago and now we need to expose it and we need to get everyone out there sharing and talking about it. And maybe we can actually try and fix stuff. A lot of things came to the surface, um, yeah. you know, during the COVID pandemic. And, and I think um, we, a lot of the corruption that, that was there for, you know, several years before, before the pandemic really did rise to the surface. The one thing where I'm now really concerned um, is that, you know, we've got the issue of the vaccines and people are being harmed by the vaccines. Um, and I really, you know, my specific focus is on kids protecting kids yeah. protecting pregnant women because you know what adults i mean we're all adults we all have to, you know we all make decisions on our, our for our health and you know some people have made bad bad decisions and like i said we've been lied to um and so we've all been lied to yeah. uh, but we we do have a pressing concern in terms of we still have this ongoing harm that's being inflicted on people on Albertans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though Albertans have kind of more or less stopped taking the vaccines, there are still people who believe they're safe for kids, safe for pregnant women. They're giving it to their kids. They're yeah. giving them that booster shot that might give them myocarditis. Or they're yeah. giving, you know, that that 16-year-old uh, another shot that might, you know, give them a, a stroke uh, or, or, or even a cancer, right? And, and so... You know, I would I would love to see Alberta being the first jurisdiction in in North America to ban COVID vaccines uh, from being given to children 
or from, yeah. from, from give, being given to pregnant women so that at least we can protect our vulnerable yeah. and you know have some investigations and again i know it's it's a big it's a big sort of um um political i don't i don't even know if it's a political it's, issue. Yeah. Yeah. it's a it's a very controversial issue because wherever the vaccine comes up it's 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 a tinderbox right yeah. it, it's you know you see what happens in florida the surgeon general comes out and says look there's no evidence for the booster shots we're not going to yeah. recommend the booster shots in anyone under 65 for example yeah. and the media goes crazy right and we know that the the media in alberta is going to go crazy you know with with anything that happens not just you know at the hs reorganization with notley begging justin trudeau to step in and intervene yeah. uh, which i thought was uh, kind of interesting it kind of goes to show you where the alliances lie that notley is asking justin trudeau to actually stop the reorganization of ahs but you know we have this issue a lot of people are being harmed what do we do you know i know the doctors are forced to keep their mouth shut and to keep ignoring the issue you know the politicians are, are afraid to address the issue because you know it's a very controversial topic but i want to see people protected let's at least protect you know kids i mean that's the least we can do as a society is is protect children and then let's figure out what's what's happening with these injuries get some more research more information um you know i've been of course tracking you know the cancers now and it's just i can tell you uh you know chris and carrie like the injuries are are, are so much worse than people realize um i think because i have you know thousands of cases sitting on my table I, I get a sense of the scope of what we're facing in terms of the scope of the the, the injuries and how many people are being injured, but I think most people don't realize what we're what we're facing. Yeah. Here's a question for you guys. Um, in it, does Alberta Health have a mechanism in which they can approve or not approve drugs, or is that strictly a Health Canada uh, wheelhouse? Dr. Mojri, did you want to? Well, my my understanding is that um, Health Canada approves uh, drugs, um, and it's up to the provinces to to decide whether they're going to pay for them. So, so uh, it's my understanding in conversations with Sean Buckley, who was the uh, lead counsel in the NCI, and he's also a lawyer uh, who's been fighting Health Canada for years and advocating for natural health products. Uh, he explained that in this country. All drugs are automatically illegal, everything. And in order for a drug to be approved, it has to go through Health Canada and Health Canada basically issues a license or an exemption to the, the law that says drugs are completely illegal. So mm -hmm. for instance, they said, the, the minister, the federal minister of health said, uh, you know, I have enough information to say that this COVID vaccine can be exempted from being illegal. So we're going to allow Canadians to use it. And then in turn, the provinces say, okay, well, this is an approved drug, not only approved, but it's highly recommended. And that ends up in our healthcare. So um, this comes down to, again, conversations between a physician and their patient, right? If the physician mm -hmm. believes that that medical intervention or that drug is appropriate for that patient, then that should happen. But that can only happen if the regulating bodies stay out of the conversation, but what we're seeing is the regulating bodies being influenced by 
uh, outside organizations, so for instance, Health Canada and the federal government, and that's filtering down to us. So, Dr. Mackis, you say I, you'd like to see Alberta, um, Alberta banning the use of that. I think that's an area in which we would have to have more sovereignty than we do now in order to do that. But I 100% agree with you that we should be able to make those types of decisions within the provinces for sure. Well, you know what? I mean, you, you've got, we've got, so we've got the public health chief office, or um, I guess it's the, the name is the chief medical officer of health mm -hmm. uh, and the chief medical officer of health can, can put out recommendations and, you know, they could put out a recommendation that, that COVID vaccines are not recommended in, in, in children under the age of, 18 or, or whatever, you know, the and they should do that. And, and that should be a provincial. I don't see why that cannot be a, a provincial, uh, you know, a matter, a provincial matter to issue that kind of a recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, now, again, I, I understand, you know, I use the word ban it, that that's that's complicated um, because, again, it's Health Canada has approved these. And, and that is the problem is that these vaccines are approved. They've been approved, you know, without the proper studies, without any long-term studies, without any studies on genotoxicity, without any studies on carcinogenicity. So there's been zero studies that to even look at if these vaccines can cause cancer long-term or if they alter the DNA long-term. None of these studies have been done and yet they've been approved, you know, by Health Canada. They're, they're recommended by all the medical associations in Canada, all of which are, are captured um, you know, going from the Canadian Medical Association to the various uh, provincial medical associations to the colleges, all these institutions are captured. So, um, you know, like if there is, again, this comes to legalities that, you know, I may not know very well. Can the province uh, really um, assert sovereignty in terms of um, making recommendations to the public that these vaccines shouldn't be used in children? And that maybe if you want to, you have to go through a very complicated process to to get that vaccine for your child. If, you know, you want to go through like a special application process, for example, I think we should be able to to do something like that. Either way, how, we need some legislative change. How do we go about actually forming something that will do these studies and then and and then actually present them? Like what is what would be the process in order to actually set something up like that and actually how long would be the process? How many how many cases would you need to do that sort of? Well, listen, Carrie, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something. I have published a paper, yeah. having my having my license. Okay, I'll tell you this. I'm blindfolded. I have my hands tied behind my back. Yeah. Um. I'm. I. I've got my license taken. I have my hospital privileges taken, and I'm publishing papers on COVID vaccine injuries and injury mechanisms. And I've done it with collaboration with doctors from Mexico, from Saudi Arabia, and from the United States. And I've still managed to publish peer-reviewed papers. Wow. So it's it's you just let doctors and scientists do what they want to do and, and, and do the studies that they want to do. Now, of course, some things have to be funded and, and will require, you know, let's say, grant funding. But it comes down to if doctors want to, for example, do very simple um case reports or case series. And we see a lot of case reports coming out of Japan where they are telling us all the different kinds of exotic autoimmune conditions that the vaccines are causing because they're allowing their doctors to publish this. If a doctor in Alberta published anything regarding COVID vaccine injuries, 
they would be persecuted by the college. They would have, you know, they'd be stripped of their hospital privileges, license, and so on. So it, it, it comes back to the college. Doctors have to have the freedom. And if doctors have the freedom, I guarantee you, doctors will start publishing cases, case reports, case series. They'll start uh, doing presentations. Right now, they're scared to death. Doctors in Alberta are scared to death of the college. They're scared to death to keep their jobs. They're literally praying. Doctors in Alberta right now are praying that they're not mandated to take the new COVID booster as doctors in British Columbia are going to be mandated to take all the, all the recent boosters because okay. they actually updated uh, and amended their Health Professions Act in British Columbia to make vaccine mandates uh, a condition of your licensing as a doctor or as a nurse, and it'll be up to the provincial government to mandate these vaccines just so you can keep your license. So doctors here are praying that they won't be mandated to take another shot, but we need to give doctors the freedom to do these studies. I can tell you, AHS will find out within 24 hours if you're trying to do you know, some kind of a study or try to get something published, and they will come after you. So the federal well, they, government, they the federal it. government could do this as well. They could, yeah. with respect to uh, vaccine passports. And we're in the middle of one of the largest clinical trials ever performed. I mean, yeah. we're literally in year three of a huge test in which oh, seventy you know, percent is involved. You know what, Chris, I just had an idea. Another thing that Danielle Smith could do, which would be very popular, I think with Albertans and which wouldn't be controversial at all, would be to make the process of reporting vaccine injuries uh, more transparent. Yeah. And, and, and you know. As a requirement. It should be a requirement. It should, it should be a requirement, be. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it comes down to the college. You know, will the college bring down the hammer if, if a doctor is even reporting vaccine injuries, which they are legally required to. But again, you know, all, a lot of these, here's the thing is, is that Albertans don't have a good picture in terms of the extent of the injuries and deaths because we're not doing the proper autopsies. So we're, we're having no autopsies done where there yeah. is staining for the mRNA or the spike protein in the tissue samples. And Dr. Rodkinson has, has been talking about this. Nobody is staining for the spike protein in the heart or in the brain or in the tumors when someone dies. And we have all these mysterious deaths, right? Number one cause of death in Alberta in 2021 was cause unknown, 3,400 yeah. Albertans dead. How is that possible? Because the proper autopsies are not being done, right? That's another area that yeah. could be opened up. Let's let's do a whole bunch of autopsies on, on, on unexplained deaths. Let's do the proper staining. Let's see what shows up. Maybe long COVID shows up. I don't know. Maybe we stain for the spike and the viral proteins, the nucleocapsid protein or other proteins, and we prove that long COVID is killing everybody and, and you know Alberta becomes famous for that. I don't think that's the case. I think it's the vaccines that are doing most of the vast majority of the killing. But let's do the autopsies to find out, right? I mean, there's a lot that can be done to shine a light on the extent of the suffering um, of the vaccine injured and those who've died under mysterious circumstances. And we need to kind of open that up. Um, you know, as Dr. Modri said, I mean, there's, you know, there's multiple things that we can do uh, on the healthcare front. And some of it involve, will involve uh, taking the college completely under control or, or, or tearing it apart. Mm -hmm. Either way, we need to start um, maybe 
saving some lives. That would be nice. Find the answers to these questions, right? Whatever they are. It's funny. Uh, Chris, Chris and I were down doing a, well, Chris was speaking at a, an event. We'll just call it that a lunch today. And uh, he, he and I ended up going out for a beer and in the washroom, there was a sticker on the mirror and the mirror actually pointed it to the vaccine injury support program. You guys know anything about this? I don't know anything about this though. Oh, okay. So it, it looks legit. It looks like it might be from Canada. It's hard to tell just from the, What's the uh, URL. It's uh, vaccineinjurysupport.ca. I, I can tell you though, Carrie, if, if this is about financial compensation for those who've been vaccine injured, you yeah. can you can speak to Dan Hartman and see what his experience was uh, when he applied for um, uh, vaccine uh, injury compensation uh, with the Canadian government, and yeah. they came back with a report that was so horrific. Uh, they lied about myocarditis. They 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 said, "Look, you don't have evidence. Uh, you know the pathology didn't show much. Uh, your son didn't have symptoms." Of myocarditis so it couldn't have been the vaccine even though we know that a lot of the the vaccine caused myocarditis is subclinical or doesn't you know there there are no symptoms they just lied on the report the so that they could deny him a compensation and i think you know that's that's an example of, of again it's it's the vaccine can do no wrong uh, yeah. no one will admit these vaccine injuries are taking place yeah um, and in terms well, of still money to be made there's a lot of money to be made still. And honestly, I can tell you, um, I could open a clinic today and within a week or within a few days, that clinic would be full. I would have a full practice yeah. within days. And that's just the vaccine injured and the cancers uh, that are showing up. And and so, you know, and I'm, there's other doctors in Alberta who want to help the vaccine injured and they can't because they know that if they do, they'll be crucified for it. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just reading through some comments here. There's a lot, there's there's a lot of people commenting. You know, my yeah. daughter got this, and now she got the jab, and now she has this. I lost my daughter. I lost my son. I lost my husband. The yeah. we get these comments, and Dr. Macus, you know exactly what we're talking about. Um, every single webinar or live stream that Carrie and I do talking about these things, the comments are flooded with mm -hmm. horrific stories of harm and loss. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I think I'd be interested in your comment, Dr. Marcus, of why the uptake uh, for vaccines now is so low, because people are becoming aware that they actually really do harm. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. uh, now there are some vaccines, obviously that that have done a lot of good. There's no question about it, but not that COVID-19 vaccine. And I think a lot of people are are deliberately avoiding it because whether they have hard data or they've just heard some things, they're avoiding it. And I think it's getting to the point where everyone knows someone uh, or has someone in their family who's been yeah. vaccine injured. I, yeah. I, think it, I think it's that prevalent. And, I, and, and honestly, I believe that's why the vaccine uptake has gone, has crashed. And, and it's, when you look at it, it's, it's in all the highly vaccinated countries have seen a similar decline of demand for the, for the new booster shots. Yeah. Whether it's Canada, United States, UK, Australia, Israel, demand has collapsed. It's it's under 10%, I think, in most of those places. Yeah, you're right. 
six percent is what I heard yeah. on average. Yeah. This this is a common comment, and it's you know, Pam says I will never have a vaccine again. I don't know if that's exactly the the issue. Like maybe any new stuff, we don't know exactly what's going on. But uh, well, I mean, you know, that's that's where the issue of trust. I think yeah. there's been so much damage yeah. done to the trust that people had in medicine. You know, in medicine as a field in general, yeah. uh, not just with individual doctors, but and imagine now you, you took a vaccine from this doctor and you have some kind of an injury, you go back to the same doctor and the doctor doesn't want to know you, doesn't want to treat you, doesn't want to doesn't want to deal with you. They don't yeah. want to they don't want to make it make an appointment for you. They, yeah. they tell you you're it's all in your head or you're crazy or you're an anti-vaxxer. There's been so much mm -hmm. damage done yeah. to the trust that people mm -hmm. had in, in, in medicine. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how you begin to repair the, yeah. the amount of damage that that's been inflicted. That's really I sad. Say, I would say to Pam, though, um, don't issue all uh, vaccines. You get a nail through your foot, you might want a tetanus shot, yeah. um, for example. And if you're younger and you need a polio booster, or rubella, or whatever, you know, um, there, there are a number of vaccines, as you well know, Dr. Marcus, that are very effective with an extremely tiny risk profile to them. Um, well, what's, what's incredible is that, you know, within the first few months, the COVID vaccines had more adverse events recorded in, yeah. in, in the VAERS system than all the previous vaccines combined. I, I know. Throughout history. Yeah. 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 It's so there's another, yeah. there's another oh. thing, Carrie, before you put okay. that up. Um, okay. So we're, we're talking about don't, don't discount everything because of this one thing. And yeah, of course, everyone's hypersensitive and we're like, we're, we're really paying attention now, but there's another thing. Um, we watched Sheila Annette Lewis fighting for her life to get an organ transplant so she could continue living and spend time with her grandkids. And she was refused that because she refused to take a medical intervention that she did not need, didn't want. And it was obvious to see around us that it was causing harm. Now, there's a lot of people that said, well, I'll never donate an organ again, or I'm ripping my, up my organ donor card. I want to just, I want to remind people, every single, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if we're that quick to say, well, you know what, this injustice is going on, so we're not going to um, save lives with our organs when we die, that's, that's, I hate to say this, but that's it's an anti-human thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, these injustices are going on, but at the same time, we have to weigh the the pros and cons of what our actions are as a result of what we're seeing, and we have to make sure that we we minimize the harms being done and maximize the opportunity for those around us to uh, um, to be safe and 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 have long lives. And yeah. you know what? Donating organs is one of the ways that we can do that. I think it's disgusting what some of the organ uh, programs, transplant programs are doing to people and discriminating for their vaccine. But I do know um, that people are also being saved. So that's just something to think about before we... You know, one of the interesting things in, in, in this context is um, before Sheila Annette Lewis was uh, activated on the transplant list in the last... Uh, six, eight weeks of her life. Um, 
people who were in need of cardiac transplantation, liver transplantation, kidney transplantation, etc., they had lifted the COVID-19 vaccine requirement um, for months. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was only the lung program that, that persisted uh, as, really? long, as long as it did. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. And that's, that's the shocking part of this is that it wasn't even a uniform policy across AHS. Yeah, it was not a uniform policy across AHS. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. There's a lot of comments about the organ donating thing. And that's why I said, like, yeah. this is something you have to think about yourself. You don't need to convince me or I, I don't think it's everything's perfect. I'm just yeah. saying uh, yeah. consider the outcome or the possible outcome of your action before you yeah. take that step. Yesterday, yeah, yesterday we had talked, I, you know, I'm kind of cognizant on the time. We're an hour and a half in, an hour and 37. Yeah. And uh, I want to do, I do want to cover a little bit of what we had talked about yesterday because even though the doctors we had were amazing, there were a couple of questions that they couldn't answer. So one of the questions, of course, uh, we talked about shedding, short answer, yes, there is some shedding, to what extent, blah, 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 what can you do? You go to the wellness company, you get uh, Dr. Marcus, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the question came up about giving blood and uh, Belinda asked this, I believe yesterday, I keep asking if anyone has compared blood types with re uh, reactions and deaths to those who are still here and no reactions. I asked a large group and the comments showed most reactions were A-type and no reactions were O-type. Any, has, do you know of any studies that have done anything on blood type? I have not seen anything in terms of, of blood type and, and reactions to vaccines. Now, I'll remind you, it's extremely difficult to get yeah. anything published, you know, with, with vaccine injuries to begin with. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, we're sort of, you know, we can get some sort of case reports across and so on, case series. Um, you know, we have a big paper with Dr. Peter McCullough, an autopsy uh, review a series of 325 autopsies, uh, sudden deaths after COVID vaccination that no one wants to publish uh, yeah. because of the implications for that. But in terms of the blood types, I have honestly not seen anything like that, uh, yeah. in, in certainly in the literature. The, yeah. neither, neither have I, but I have had people ask me um, who are going in for surgery, if I need blood, can yeah. I ask for blood from we someone who's, yeah, who's not had uh, received the vaccines unless you've you've somehow stocked your blood somewhere uh yeah it's it's pretty but much that's my, do, apparently and that's my suggestion usually is yeah prior to your surgery you can usually donate up to two units of your own blood which will yeah. store in the blood bank then you have your surgery if you need blood they'll give it back to you yeah so someone just said yesterday that they're refusing that you can't do that unless it's a, spe a specific circumstance in which your doctor kind of prescribes it. Hmm. It depends. Um, it depends what the AHS policy right now is. And I, I honestly don't know what AHS is doing. I've heard the same thing. I've heard that they don't allow you to store your, your, your blood anymore, but I, I don't know what the current policy I would, is. I would be surprised at that. I've operated on a number of Jehovah Witnesses and uh, they won't accept blood. Um, but they don't, they didn't have a problem of accepting their own blood. And there's the ticket folks. Everyone's got to be <laughs> bank your own blood. <laughs> yep.
Um, and then, you know, we, we, we talked about, I think we talked about this on the show. If not, then we had talked about it, uh, before the show yesterday in regards to, uh, the same thing with, uh, broken bones and, and it kind of relates to the other topic was, uh, accidents, people falling, uh, maybe car accidents and all that kind of stuff. Do you think anything, the jabs may have been related to that? Is there anything going on in the brain when, uh, when you get the jab again, those were, I don't even know how to answer that one. The only way I could answer that would be if somebody has a sudden arrhythmia yeah. and loses conscience, consciousness. So an arrhythmia for people who don't know the term is an irregular heartbeat, or yeah. they have um, a minor stroke uh, and become dizzy or confused, or uh, and then they fall. Yeah. Um, that's really the only mechanism. There's no, to me, there's no, um, there's no logical con. Uh, connection between yeah. getting a jab and getting a broken bone other yeah. than through the mechanism that I've just defined. Okay. Well, okay. what we heard yesterday from doctors Trazi and uh, McCullough and Ploth was that from, now from my understanding as a guy who literally makes hamburgers for a living, the COVID-19 injection is supposed to be an intramuscular injection. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. It's not supposed to be traveling all throughout your body. But what they're finding is that that's occurring and it's causing inflammation in all sorts of different areas. So, I mean, really, if it's traveling throughout all of your organs and all of your body systems, would it be would it be um, uh, a, would it be far fetched to assume that it could really cause any kind of inflammatory response anywhere? Well, the, the broken bone issue is is I haven't seen anything uh, about that. Um, now, you know, there's an issue, of, obviously, of the clotting and, and the clots, micro clots, um, you know, sort of uh, the clots can show up anywhere. Uh, in terms of people, for example, having, you know, I just did a substack on, on medical emergencies behind the wheel. People, you know, behind the wheel, they have some kind of a medical emergency. And again, it's usually cardiac, but it could be a blood clot. Um, you know, you'll have the occasionally rare, like a seizure or something like they've never had a seizure before. They'll have a seizure behind the wheel. So these kind of these kind of things are happening in terms of the the lipid nanoparticles going systemic. I mean, that I think is is the source of of the vaccine injuries. Um, you know, you can trace it back to the lipid nanoparticle with the mRNA getting into the bloodstream and then delivering uh, really going anywhere in the body. Some we get some deposition in the bone marrow, for example. Now, what what are the lipid nanoparticles with mRNA doing in the bone marrow? Are, are they transfecting cells or stem cells? You know, are some of these leukemias and lymphomas that we're seeing is is it the result of that? You know, they're getting deposited into testes and ovaries. Uh, some gets filtered through the liver. You know, through the hepatobiliary system. We see a spike in liver cancers, pancreatic cancers, gallbladder cancers, cholangiocarcinomas, colon cancers. Um, it becomes a very complicated topic, uh, but the systemic delivery of these lipid of, of the lipid nanoparticle platform is the problem, and it's mm -hmm. why I would never take an mRNA vaccine of any kind. Uh, and I think that's where it comes back to when some people feel like they'll never take another vaccine again because. There are hundreds of mRNA vaccines that are in the pipeline, both uh, through Pfizer and Moderna. At one point, I counted their pipeline. I think it's close to 500 mRNA vaccines that they are working on, whether it's phase one, phase two, phase three trials. We are going to face a tsunami of, of products that they, they want to release. And it's, and it's the same platform. They've told us 
We're going to use the same lipid nanoparticle. So they're happy with the lipid nanoparticle. They're going to use the Canadian same intervention. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're going to use the same manufacturing process. Um, now the issue is the contamination, DNA contamination, as part of the manufacturing process, the DNA plasmids that are being discovered in the Pfizer vials, in the Moderna vials, really in every single vaccine vial that's been tested. Um, I've spoken to uh, Dr. David uh, Speaker at the University of Guelph. He, he tested 27 vials, found DNA contamination in all of them, confirming the findings of uh, Professor Philip Buckholz, the University of South Carolina, and Steve McKernan, who discovered the, the DNA contamination. That's something that Pfizer and Moderna are not even addressing. And Health Canada said, oh, okay, uh, yeah, the contamination's there, but it doesn't cause any problems, no problem. Vaccines stay on the market. So all kinds of problems with these vaccines are, and, and it seems like there's always a new problem that comes to light the more we learn about the vaccines. Well, and it's going to be forced upon us uh, through the pandemic treaty if that, yeah. um, you know, when when implemented, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Unless we can block it. Well, we're working on that. Yes, we are. We need That's loud voices, loud right. voices, and, yeah. and get your elected official and, uh, like, right through the whole government thing to at least acknowledge and just put a stop to that. It's... We all need to stand up and say what's going on and uh, that we don't want this pandemic treaty to go through. Well, the, yeah. premier has, the premier has said that she's not gonna allow the World Health Organization to dictate health policy in Alberta. Problem mm -hmm. is, is the pandemic treaty has been signed by the Canadian government um, and its implementation throughout the country gets forced on the provinces by withholding transfer payments yeah. for a non-compliant province. And this is where, this has always been my biggest concern with respect to um, the imbalance in power between the federal and the provincial governments. And really like, you know, as you know, Dr. Mackis, our whole purpose is to empower the provincial government to restructure, redefine our relationship with Canada. Mm -hmm. so, so that we can get out from under these sorts of things. Because I have a very strong feeling from the feedback we're getting that many other regions in the country feel the same way um, and don't support these kinds of government mandates. Mm -hmm. But they don't, have a, they don't have a mechanism to deal with it. In this province, we have a mechanism, and that is you know, to convince the public to support a petition to force a referendum to empower the provincial government. Mm -hmm. which is, as, as you know, is through a referendum. But it doesn't mean Alberta leaves Canada. It just means that that uh, Daniel Smith can negotiate new terms. And if we don't get what we want, then we have the right to leave. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is the, the whole issue of leverage that we talk about all the time. And uh, Daniel seems to be, Daniel Smith, the premier, seems to be the only one who has the courage to actually embrace this concept. If so there was a comment up here saying health is provincial jurisdiction, and you're absolutely right, it is. But the problem is, as Dr. Modry states, um, the golden rule, and that is who he who has the gold rules. And unfortunately, our tax collection in this province works as like we send all of the money to the federal government, and they send it back to us in transfers to administer health. The federal government is responsible for infrastructure, i.e. building hospitals and that type of thing. The provincial government is responsible for 
administering health. Now, if the federal government says, well, you know what, we're going to cut your health transfers if you don't uh, submit to our our international pandemic treaty that we've signed. Well, yeah. what is the pro what do the provinces do every single time they capitulate to the federal government yeah. and they get what they want. So that's yeah. that's the problem. Well, I think I think things are going to come to a head because, you know, I think the pandemic, the WHO pandemic treaty, I believe it was May that they set a deadline for this yeah. coming May, uh, you know, for the ratification. Um, things are going to come to a head because, you know, there's no way we can be part of that. Um, well, and, you know, they are coming to a head, but globally. So yeah, Canadians and Albertans aren't the only ones that are that are figuring these things out. Uh, just recently, there was a motion passed in the European Union um, respecting mm -hmm. or affirming the the idea that the citizens can initiate a referendum because they want a referendum to yeah. not participate in this uh, pandemic treaty. Uh, there's a few countries who have specifically already said, no, we don't want to participate in this. Uh, the Netherlands just elected a, a kind of a far right uh, uh, government and and uh, prime minister. So the pendulum is swinging the other way. I think it's our job to make sure that, you know, we we push this as best we can, as fast we can. So yeah. while we're waiting for things to change, uh, there's less harm done and, uh, and and less suffering to the people around us. Yeah. And you know, what's amazing is, is I mean, the countries that are pushing back, these are small countries. This is yeah. Estonia, Estonia, Estonia. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Slovenia. You know, these are small countries that are standing up to some very powerful entities. And I, and I think it's it's inspiring. It might actually inspire a movement of, of rejection of, mm -hmm. of this whole uh, process. Did so, you see, uh, did you see, do you know the term fuera? I'm not sure I've, it, it's... It's a, it's a Spanish term, and um, the new president of Argentina. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a good video of him, and he's showing all of the various um, um, departments, and he's, he grabs it off the board, and he says, Fuera, out. Oh, yes, yes. Fuera, out. <laughs> it's great. And, it's all uh, the bureaucracies. I think he, he it's the bureaucracies that he was uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Ripping, ripping off. Central bank. And yeah, it was, that's great. That we need more leaders and politicians to, to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, this has yep. been fun, guys. Yes, this, this has been a great conversation. And, and again, certainly not where I thought it was going, but obviously we needed to talk this out because uh, a completely different conversation that we had yesterday again this was a two-part series on uh conversation with the doctors uh and so thank you again dr modri uh, dr Macus, yeah, for, for time and for everything that you guys do it's uh above and beyond uh you know everything that's happened to you, to you two everything that's happened to any of the other doctors any of the professionals that we've seen that happened with ahs and uh the government um kudos to you guys for having the the nads to to do that i mean uh you know uh, of course we we all we all are stories in terms of what 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 we've lost and uh and you need to do what's right it's easy yeah and you're right it, that is exactly right it, there there shouldn't be any even well should i do this or not no just go with 
go with your gut and go with what you know what is right. So maybe that maybe that we'll just end with that then. Yeah. So I got to get up and make cinnamon buns and cut steaks because tomorrow. Oh, yes. Cafe, um, I've got free steak dinner for the APP members and full steam ahead members and we'll stop supporters group members. So I should probably get some sleep. Yes, and I won't even be able to go to that only because ah. we're doing an APP webinar tomorrow night too. So Wednesdays, Wednesdays, that's what we do. But uh, I, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy you know having these conversations. And uh, thank, thank you to our viewers. Uh, I, I don't say it enough, but thank you for spending time with us and uh, and even listening to us. Even you know the days later in your car, just because you don't even need to see us. You just need to hear what we're saying. So again, thank you so much. So yes. with that, yes, a pleasure meeting you. Look yes, forward to meeting you in person. Absolutely. And and honestly, I'm actually as optimistic about AHS as I've as I've been in the last eight wow. years. So yeah, I think yeah. uh, I think the future is looking bright. Uh, you know, there are several times I've thought of leaving Alberta and and just packing up uh, the family and and leaving elsewhere, but. You know, I love the province. Um, I came to Alberta in 2013. I love the province. I, I think uh, of all the provinces in Canada, I think Alberta has by far the most potential to be the, the most prosperous and free. And, and, and I think I think the future is looking very bright. And thanks to, you know, the work of like doctors like Dr. Modri and, uh, you know, it, it's the future is looking bright. And I'm really excited to see what what happens over the coming months. Excellent. I know, you know Chris they, said, they said to us, are you ready to surrender? Carrie, do you remember what, what we said? Are you ready we to surrender? Who we said that? We have yet to fight. To fight. Oh, that's right, Jim. <laughs> I actually don't remember who said that, but someone, <laughs> someone will put it in the comments. Good night, All right, good night. All right. Yeah, good night. Good night. Cheers. Yeah.